Good evening, Bennigan listeners. It's been a minute since the last episode, the last volume, and it might be another minute before the next one. Or it could be, you know, not a minute. It could happen tomorrow. Uh, I guess I'm just doing this improv. I originally wanted to do it every week, but there's only so much that someone can talk about. And for someone like me, I'm not exactly a celebrity or someone people are tuning into by the millions or dying to listen to. I mean, they should be. Don't get me wrong. It's their loss that they're not. They definitely should be waiting outside my house for autographs and shit, but they're just not aware of it yet, and that's fine. So anyway, uh, if you are one of the, you know, few thousand million people who listen to this and you've been wondering when the next one was going to be, it's now. And the one after this, I don't know. I, I don't have a date set. I don't want to put it into stone because then if the day comes, I can't get around to it or I don't feel like it or I have nothing really that I'm feeling enthusiastic about talking about, <clears throat> then I won't do it and then I'll let you down. So just know that these will continue to happen at which rate I am not sure. Anyway, let's jump right into it. We will be talking uh, thoroughly about depression and anxiety today, something that I know a lot about, depression that is. Not so much anxiety, but I have a lot of experience, a lifelong experience with depression, so I have uh, a perspective and some input and some information that, you know, if, if you also are living along with the darkness in your head, you can relate to, and if you don't have it in your head, I can maybe answer some questions, I can explain things put it into perspective for you so that you'll understand. Either way, whichever side of the fence you're on, this one should be interesting. I've been saying I was going to do this one for a long time, and as I was just taking my dog for a walk and realizing how fucking sad and depressing it's going to be to lose him, because that's the reality of life, right? You get things and then you lose them, and eventually you lose yourself. I mean, you're born, you die. So really, life is all about gaining and losing things, and there's a balance, and how you handle that has a lot to do with your mental health. But let's do our, you know, podcastly, daily, usual, weekly, monthly fucking segment, whatever you want to call it, the On This Day segment. Okay, so today is Friday, May 18th, 2018. On this day, in 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. And I chose this one because... If you have any existential crises or thoughts at all, then fucking think about supervolcanoes, think about earthquakes, asteroids, think about nuclear explosions, think about all of the ways that life as we know it, I don't know why that's a phrase, life as we know it, fucking life, think about all the ways that life could be extinguished, like now. Like if an asteroid just came out of nowhere, it's not like in the movies where you see it coming. It's not like you, you could prepare for it. I mean, obviously they, they'd have a chance to detect it as it's getting closer to Earth, but there could be one that came from the other side of the sun so that we weren't able to see it right away, or there could be just, you know, whatever. Nibiru, Planet X, comes out of nowhere and just murks us. Or there's, you know, giant earthquakes uh, with, with like a 10 on the Richter scale, something that's never happened before. That could happen, and that would cause uh, global earthquakes and global volcanoes to erupt and then Mount St. Helens which is well overdue by how many thousands of years they've been hearing some rumblings down there and feeling some rumblings in their uh, I forget what what they use the seismometer there's a certain tool they use 
to detect uh, you know the rumbling in the earth and they can kind of predict earthquakes a little bit before they happen but anyway uh, if you've ever had just an existential crisis then you've probably thought about these things but that's why I chose Mount St. Helens erupting on 1980 for the on this day segment because there's just so many things that could go wrong and I did a little bit of digging and thanks to uh, Michael on Vsauce, if you've never watched those videos on YouTube, you're missing out. He goes way in depth on things, and I've learned so many interesting things from him, so check that out. Vsauce, V, and then Sauce. And there's three different Vsauce channels, and they're all good, but my favorite is Michael. And um, according to the video I just watched about human extinction, the Global uh, Catastrophic Risks Survey, which was issued by Oxford University, you know, they're kind of a big deal, they're smart, um, it declared that all things considered, uh, every sort of possible catastrophe, flood, earthquake, asteroid, you name it, um, the chance or the likelihood that humans will become extinct before the year 2100 is about one in five, 19 point whatever percent. So basically one out of five. It's like rolling the dice almost. There's six sides on a dice, but I don't like those odds. I mean, I, I won't be around by the year 2100, but it's essentially saying that we have a good chance of not being around. And you know, uh, global warming and the fact that our planet is so overpolluted and overpopulated and just worn out, fish are being fished out of the sea at 400% of the rate that they are able to reproduce. And so in the near future, uh, the oceans will be essentially empty. There's all these horrible negative things that are that are well known, and it doesn't seem like a whole lot is being done about it. I don't understand that. I don't understand how we can continue to dump trillions of tons of plastic and garbage into landfills and in the ocean. And like, what are we expecting? It's it's not biodegradable, at least not for hundreds of years. So, what are we expecting? It's it's like one of those problems like your laundry is building up, but you just keep throwing it in the closet and closing the door. Well, eventually that closet's going to fill up. And then what? It's going to burst. You're going to have some problems. <laughs> I don't get it. <clears throat> Let me take a drink here. It's really humid, and I just took Girth for a walk. Oh, he heard the word, and he perked up. But I've been trying to go for more W-A-L-Ks recently because I really don't want to be a fat ass. I really don't want to be. I don't fat shame people, but they kind of, you know, they kind of gross me out when they're just absurdly obese, how sweaty and stinky and, you know, like how do you reach your ass, let alone wipe it? That's, I always wanted to ask somebody that because you know their T-Rex arms cannot physically reach around the stomach side, love handles around the big butt cheek and then get a good, good old wipe in, you know, there's no way. So I've always wondered that. Uh, I've also always wondered... You know when scientists say, oh, this happened between six and seven billion years ago. Do you know how long a fucking billion years is? And they throw it out so casually, like they're, like they're smart. Oh, yes, this happened between 30 and 34 billion years ago. We are sure of it. Okay, a four billion year window? That's not science. That's not math. That's just a guess. I could say that for how much we know about the beginning of humans and was it the Big Bang or was it, you know, God created Adam and Eve and then from Adam and Eve they had kids and then, you know, there's there's certain theories, there are beliefs, but to just throw it out like, this happened between 9 and 74 billion years ago. Well, no fuck, of course it did. 
there's nothing sciencey about that. So I always loathed when that's the kind of information they'd be dishing out. The Earth is 65 billion years old, or whatever the fuck, and uh, dinosaurs were here between uh, 60 and 20 billion years ago. It's like, really? You dumb fuckers? <laughs> it drives me nuts. Don't act, don't act like you know things. When, you, when I don't know something, and that happens a lot, I admit I don't know it because I'm always willing to learn, and if I am saying something wrong or if what I think to be correct is, is incorrect, I want to know. But I will never pretend I know things that I don't. I do know a lot of shit about a lot of things. But when I don't, I, I get it. I shut up. I listen to the person who does. And more people need to follow suit. I, I see too often when people pretend like they know things if they don't. Like you just, if they don't know, they have to at least know something. We all know somebody like that who just, there's no subject in which they don't know something. Well, I recently saw a uh, comment on a martial arts thread. Okay, there was a video of a guy picking another guy up and had him in like a standing 69 position so that he was hanging the guy upside down and he put him down and started beating on him and whatnot. And this person who is not a mixed martial arts fan said, couldn't he have just spiked him on his head? Like clearly that would be the most effective move. And so this person didn't know, right? Not a fan, doesn't watch the sport, doesn't know the rules. This person asked, I, it's an honest question, sincerely, I don't know, Could why didn't he just drop him on his head? Seems like that would have been more effective for doing damage. And then this guy re responded to that guy saying, uh, it depends on the league, bro. And then I thought to myself, well, no, no, it doesn't. No league, no organization, Bellator, uh, King of the Cage, World Series of Fighting, UFC, no organization in the world allows head spikes. So I said to the guy, uh, thanks, Kenneth. His name was Kenneth. I said, everybody tell Kenneth thank you for being one of those guys who gives the most, one of the most, I don't know, but I'm going to say something anyway answers you could possibly give. Oh, it depends on the league, bro. Like, no, it doesn't. No league or organization would allow that. So no, it doesn't depend on the league. That was an example of, if you don't know anything, shut the fuck up. Kenneth was saying, oh yeah, well, in some leagues you can drop. No. No leagues allow you to drop somebody on your head. No athletic commission would allow that. There's spine injuries, there's neck injuries. There's enough brain trauma as it is from getting punched in the face, elbowed in the face, kicked in the face. They don't allow that, they just don't. And so then the guy got angry. He's like, well, back in the day there were no rules. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. But that's not a league or an organization, that's an era. And in the early stages of fucking football, they didn't even have helmets, and then they had leather helmets, and things progress. But currently, just shut up. If you don't know things, shut up. I also recently saw on Facebook that um, one young lady, she simply asked the question, is every or any topic able to be joked about? And that's a fair question by her because somebody had gotten on her case about joking about cancer or AIDS or some shit. And so, the, of course, there are a lot of varying opinions. And what do you think? Do you think that everything is fair game to be joked about? Can you joke about cancer, AIDS, uh, suicide, uh, infidelity? You know, can you joke about these things? My opinion on this is as such. It is a case-by-case -case basis. Everything can be made funny. Everything can be made funny. Suicide, cancer, there are funny parts about everything, depending on the person. To me, 
I've had loved ones die of cancer. I saw how they withered away slowly and were miserable, and it was almost like a form of torture. Nature was torturing these individuals. They just they lost weight. They could no longer eat. They became skin and bones. They died. It was very sad to see, and it broke my heart. And so cancer will never be funny to me. AIDS is fucking hilarious, because when I think of AIDS, I think of two dudes butt-fucking without a condom, and the smell and the sound, oh, spank my hairy ass, and then all of a sudden one has AIDS because he got fucked in the ass because he's gay. Okay, there's a perfect example. AIDS has never affected me in a negative way. It has never affected any of my family members in a negative way. Therefore, it's not off limits to me. It, it, it can be funny to me. Cancer has absolutely affected more than one of my loved ones. Suicide has more has affected more than one of my loved ones suicide will never be funny to me is every topic able to be joked about yes but you can't expect it to be funny to everybody it's just it doesn't work that way um another one uh let's just say depression since that's the topic of the day uh for those who don't have depression they see somebody moping around and kind of just dragging their feet and can't really can't really dig their feet in in life and can't really get going stuck in the mud sort of and they might think you fucking piece of shit just do something you know it might be kind of funny to them that this person just can't start the engine just can't go well for those that have depression or know people that struggle with it it's absolutely not funny it's very sad it's sad to see so yes I mean everything can be joked about and everything really should be joked about Life is a joke. This is one giant laugh where hairless monkeys were on an organic spaceship flying through space. What, it, what about this existence should be taken seriously? It's a joke. And there's more and more uh, support in the belief that this is a simulation theory as time goes on anyway. It just... I don't know. You ever wonder about that? My brain is so full of just random shit on a daily basis that I just, I think, non-stop about, you know, <laughs> all of this stuff. Speaking of jokes, I wanted to tell this story because one time it was a really funny point in my life. I worked at Walmart for about six months, and the only reason I took that job is because I needed a job right away. I've always been of the, of the mind and of the uh, idea that if you can work, you should be working. I grew up on a farm, so those sort of values and morals were instilled in me, and the most I had ever taken off between school or work in my entire life was two months, and that was in between jobs. Well, so I took this job at Walmart just because I wanted to have a job before I got my driving job, and they didn't, you know, who knows when they were going to hire. And uh, I don't speak fluent Spanish. I wouldn't even say I speak Spanish. I would say I understand less than half of the Spanish language. It's probably about 40%. And that's only if they speak slowly. They being, you know, people who speak it fluently. Because it sounds like gibberish even if you kind of understand it. If you don't know any Spanish, it sounds like it's archaic, like cave painting writing fucking language. They're like, and if you say, okay, slow down, and then you can kind of pick out some. That's where I'm at. My level of understanding of the language of Spanish is, it's above average, certainly, especially for a white dude, but I don't understand that much. I took three years of it, two years in high school, one in college. I worked with, uh, I worked two separate jobs, one for a flooring company and then uh, at a factory, and I worked with a lot of Mexicans slash Spanish-speaking people, so I, I do know a lot of Spanish. Okay, so one night, uh, 
11 p.m. to 7 a.m. at Walmart overnights. One night, some gentlemen came in and 100% Mexican, zero English. Like, maybe the word no, which happens to be also no in Spanish, was the only thing they knew in English. Uh, these dudes came in and nobody spoke a lick of Spanish, but everybody at work knew that I kind of did. So, I was called to the front. And I'm in the back stocking, and I had no idea. They were like, Ben, can you come up front? And I'm like, not important at all. I'm just a fucking worker bee, like just some peasant. And I'm like, what the fuck do they want? I'm like, okay, I'm coming. And I get up there, and there's these three Mexican dudes standing there, and they're like, hola. And immediately I knew. I was like, oh, fuck. I wish I had been studying more lately because this could really make me look good if I'm able to, you know, help these dudes. And luckily, they didn't want, like, a sleeping bag or, uh, you know, a, a bow for hunting. They didn't want anything that I didn't know. They wanted carrots and corn and rice. They were making some Mexican shit. And so they asked me for, uh, you know, maize, uh, fucking, what? I don't even remember anymore because it's been so long. <sighs> maize, arroz, you know, whatever. I knew the words at the time. I just, if you don't use it, you lose it. Anyway, they asked me for uh, necesito uh, this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh, okay, camina, walk with me, follow me. And so I brought them right to it. And they were like, gracias. And I was like, ah, de nada, no problem, you know. And then they said some other shit, but they, they were speaking really quickly because they're thinking this guy gets it. And so far they had given me like day one vocabulary, like corn, please, carrots, please, rice. And I'm like, of course I fucking understand that. And then they said a bunch of shit that I didn't understand. And I said, mas despacio, uh, mi español es poquito, pero es bueno para un gringo, ha ha ha. Like my Spanish is decent but you have to speak slowly because I'm white, ha ha ha. You know, kind of made a little racist joke in there. <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. And then they, they slowed it down. Then they wanted like juice, like Hugo de Naranja. They wanted orange juice. I'm like, okay. So they got all these things, whatever. And then I'm walking because they had, you know, gotten everything. They were like, gracias, muchas gracias. Thank you very much uh, for being white and understanding us. Uh, anyway, we were walking, I was walking them to the cash register. I was like, we'll take Carrie up here. You know, and on the way, um, we passed an aisle full of uh, workers. You know, there was a couple other dudes and one other chick. And I said, Parate, stop. And then I pointed at them and I said, She's a slut. I said, uh, Ella, which means she, es una piruja. She is a slut. And they looked at me like, What the fuck? And I was like, Es la verdad, it's true, you know? And I said she prefers giant penises, 12 inches or more. And there was a guy in the aisle. And I said, él es joto, muy joto. He is gay, very gay. And I was like, all the years of learning this dirty shit that's fucking hilarious, I finally get to use it because these dudes were like young and they, they were clearly like, you know, cool, joking around. I wasn't feeling like I was going to offend them. But I said all these things. I just rattled off all this dirty shit that I knew. And they looked at me like, ah, what the fuck? And they were laughing. And they were shaking their head. And I was just like, yeah, that's right. And then I walked them to the checkout. They checked out and left. Never saw them again. But they will forever remember a guy going, yes, here's the corn. Here's the carrots. Here's the rice. Here's your orange juice. By the way, that girl likes 12-inch dicks. That guy's a giant faggot. He takes it in the ass all the time. 
He likes it when you take the poop out of his butt with your penis. And they were like, whoa! <laughs> the things we do to distract ourselves from work and shit and stuff that we don't want to be. Because I, I wasn't just in work mindset. I was in have fun, joke around with the Mexicans mindset. Almost like I was at my previous jobs. So as most of you know, I semi-recently went through my fourth breakup. So I, uh, I mean, we're still good friends. We still maybe have sex once in a while. Who knows? I mean, we might not, but we might. And we still get along very well, which is, is odd to me because I don't stay in contact with the other three. And, you know, uh, I'm just not interested in another relationship. I've been asked, you know, ever since I turned 20 years old, why aren't you interested in marriage? And it's like, well... Uh, 28 years old, never once seen a reason why I should get married. My grandma was divorced six times, my aunt was divorced four times, my mother has been divorced uh, two, three, three times, um, my dad's been divorced three times. I've never once in my life seen a marriage and thought, wow, I want that. I've just never seen a good example. I've never seen... Uh, I mean, my grandpa and grandma, they love each other, but the older I got, the more I heard that they had issues too, and the only reason why they stayed together is is because grandma sort of accepted a bunch of bullshit and didn't leave, you know? Apparently things just weren't great. So I just have never seen a reason why, why should I want to get married? Tell me why. Uh, so I can pay to get divorced and... Uh, split up and have to deal with kids, you know, over there and then over here, and there's just no reason to get married, in my opinion. And more and more, it seems like that is the mindset of people. I don't know, I guess when I was like eight years old, all these grown-ups are married and I see them having kids and whatnot, but then I get older, and how many of them are together anymore? Like, less than half. It's ridiculous. And I'm talking about both ends of my family. Like, that side, the other side. Uh, well, found, turns out he was having an affair with her, and turns out they just couldn't make it work, and so they're divorced. And so it all seemed like fun and games until marriages just don't work out. What is the divorce rate? Like, fucking 80%? And, of course, that figures in all marriages, like the ones that happen in Vegas, and they're so drunk they don't remember. And then, like, wow, we got married last night? You know, all marriages considered. Uh, my grand grandma and grandpa had a friend who was a truck driver and he had been married to his wife I believe 51 years it was over 50 years and they got divorced when he was like fucking 70 uh, old lady uh, let's give her an old lady's name Irma Irma found out that uh, fucking Billy had a kid that she didn't know about he had cheated like 40 years earlier and then this kid shows up and he's like, Dad! And Billy's like, the fuck? Who are you? And Irma's like, yeah, who dis? And Billy's like, oh shit, this is my kid. And then Irma's like, oh really? Okay, well, I wasn't there for that birth, that particular one. And so they actually got divorced. And like, fuck, they're senior citizens. They're like ready to die. And they got divorced. If that type of love can't make it because of whatever reason, I have no faith. And so, am I getting married? Fuck no. <laughs> There's just no reason to. No benefit. They say, why does 
divorce costs so much money? Because it's worth it. Hmm. I just can't do the whole cycle anymore. I don't even want another relationship right now. Actually, I can't ever see wanting another relationship right now. Uh, if there's fuel or energy or whatever form of energy that we have, uh, love or fucking whatever, my tank is empty. I have nothing more to give. I can't do it. I can't go through that whole stupid cycle again. It's tiresome. You meet someone, oh, they're attractive, you talk to them, then you go home and you're thinking about them, and you're texting them, and then you hang out again and you're like, wow, this person's really cool. And then you think about them some more and you're like, wow, I can't stop thinking about you, I've never met anybody like you. Uh, it's, I mean, it's cliche because it happens constantly. It's an endless vicious cycle. And then you start hanging out more. And then you start cuddling, and then you do your first kiss. And then you're like, come over to my house. Oh, I can meet your parents now? Yeah, why not? I mean, we're cool, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, so I, I guess we're dating, you know? And then you meet the family, and then you have to pretend you know them all and memorize their names and like them. Then you go to your first fucking Christmas at their house or Thanksgiving, and then you meet the extended family, and then you forget their names the next day, and then the next year when you go again to that Christmas or Thanksgiving, you realize, fuck, I should have remembered their names. I don't know any of you. It's almost like the first time meeting you again. And it is. And then they're like, hey, Ben. And you're like, hey, partner. What, don't you remember me? Sure, I do, uh, uh, buckaroo. My name's not buckaroo. Sure it is, partner. See, you know what I mean? Uh, it's a tiresome thing. I don't have the energy for it. And I cannot do that whole fucking bullshit again. Hold in your farts. Pretend that... You don't want to just put her face in the pillow and just ram her and, you know, pretend that you're a gentleman. And for the ladies, you have to pretend that you don't shit. And we know you do. We know you stank. You have to shave every time we do it because you want to impress us, even though you hate shaving that often. There's just this facade from both sides. And it's tiresome. And I'm, I'm over it. You know, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm only 28, but really, I'm 95, so I've, I've been there, I've done that, not my first rodeo, I've been around the block, call it what you will, I don't have the energy for that. I can't do it, and nor should you. You know what I'm finding? I've spent very little time being single, right? But what I'm finding is, as great as love feels, as great as it is to have somebody to hold, and to talk to, and to cherish, and blah blah blah, as great as all that is, you know what's greater? Not having expectations from other people on you. You have only your own expectations. It's like a single player game, but you can still interact with other players without actually having it be a two player game and having to wait for the other person on screen to catch up. Hey, wait for me, okay, coming. You know, there's nothing stopping you. Not that I'm ambitious and outgoing enough to fucking start a business or go do anything anyway with my newfound freedom, but it's just, it's sort of peace of mind. I've I've let down enough people in my life. My parents, they have no reason to be proud of me at all. And I'm not saying this as a poor me. I'm saying this objectively and fair. I have accomplished nothing in 28 years. I went to college and I just couldn't hack it. I dropped out. I fucking graduated high school and I've worked. You know, aside from being on this disability, uh, this outing of work because of a fucked up back. Aside from that, all I did was work and graduate high school. I've fucking done nothing. And it's not like I do volunteer work. Uh, I'm not in phenomenal shape. I just, there's no reason for people to be proud of me. And it, I can laugh about it because I really don't care. 
that would make some people sad saying that, but it doesn't make me sad because I don't give a fuck. This is such a short, uh, like, really, it's a snap of a fingers. That's that's what this life is. It's over before you know it. And if I become a doctor or if I become an astronaut or whatever, my grave is still going to be the same size as if I don't accomplish any of these things. So what I've been focusing on lately is just enjoying the little things and appreciating the little things. You sort of count your blessings because to expect... Uh, anything beyond just being an average person. And there's nothing wrong with being average. You know, when I was young, I had, I had uh, what visions of grandeur, I believe that's the phrase, where I could be a comedian or a radio host or something big. I could do something. Well, that never happened. Sure, partially because, you know, I didn't really dig in and pursue it. And partially because I never had any opportunity for it. But it doesn't matter why. The only, the only thing that matters is what? You know, the result. It just didn't happen. And so I had to accept um, that being just normal or average, just mediocre, mediocrity had to be fine with me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been even content. And so if you ever feel like, uh, you know, you're not all that impressive of a person, who gives a fuck? Earth is just, is not even a speck of dust in space, you know, and then we're not even a speck of dust on Earth. So really, we basically don't exist in the grand scheme of things. <sighs> a recent study shows being in a relationship is the second leading cause of weight gain. Fuck. I mean, that's not good if you're in America, where three-fourths are obese and one is overweight, one-fourth, so like basically nobody's in shape in America. I was just listening to the uh, Joe Rogan podcast with Tim Kennedy and he was talking about how the army has uh, had to change their standards for what for what is acceptable to be in the army now because it used to be they had more than they could choose from basically they had a pool of people and they had a spectrum you have to be here or better uh, intellectually physically or you can't be in and now because of you know sedentary lifestyles and because people are snowflakes and you know uh, people are offended and they have 500 genders people just aren't as tough you know mentally or physically as they used to be so the army has actually they're restructuring their uh, what they deem to be ex you know to be okay for being a militia or an army or ROTC or uh, whatever it happens to be the reserve they're just the army the dudes in the army nowadays compared to 20 years ago he said it's just apples and oranges and I found that interesting and if the second leading cause in you know overall in people of weight gain is being in a relationship what does that say about being in a relationship we get comfortable so we stop trying well that doesn't sound like a very positive thing to me but that's exactly what it is I've gained weight in a relationship you know when you're single you try to have a six-pack you try to get tan you try to look fuckable and if you're a girl you shave you keep a swimsuit body you know you try to look fuckable that's what it's all about right at the end of the day whether you're telling jokes or making them laugh or making them smile really the ultimate goal is the same and so hmm, another reason not to be in a relationship because it's gonna cause you to not give a fuck about impressing anyone anymore because why do that extra workout why go get tan? Why be fit? Why stay sharp? Why? Because you're not trying to bring any new chicks home. You've already got one at home that loves you the way you are. That's called settling, and that's also not good. Relationships are just unhealthy for people, I'm finding. 
And I know there's a lot of people that are in seemingly happy relationships, but that's what they post on Facebook. You know, who knows how they're really feeling? It seems that all the quote-unquote provocative or slutty, uh, promiscuous girls from high school, the hot ones, they all have one thing in common. They're all dating nerds. And the stereotypes are true. Like the football players, for the most part, they grow up to be like fucking serving you burgers, right? And the nerds who were valedictorian and really smart and you copied off them in physics, now they still have those same nerdy glasses, but now they have hot wives and they're making 300k a year. Or more. It's not just my experience. I've seen this ever since I was young and it's it's kind of, you know, kind of the way things go, right? You have hot chicks and they only bang the football players and the cool dudes in high school. And then these same hot chicks are used up and their pussies are all flopping all over the place and they want to settle down, but they want to settle down with a guy that has a thick wallet. So they settle for the nerdy dudes you never would have pictured them with. It's interesting. It's a a crazy dynamic, but it never fails. It's consistent. You're not going to see too many of these hot chicks settling for just a basic dude, you know? who works a nine to five and you know it just doesn't happen it happens once in a while you'll have you'll see a pretty girl that settles but for the most part these hot chicks they know they're hot and they're like haha sorry i was mean to you in high school your glasses are kind of cute i mean i know i thought they were nerdy before but so do you like vaginas because i i I have one of those oh okay you want to put that in there well (laughs) put a ring on it first i don't know maybe they're not as shallow as i am making them out to be There's uh, that old fucking adage, you only see in others what you see in yourself, but that's fucking bullshit. I don't see myself in others. I'm as unique and alone in this existence as, you know, some people agree with me on things and I agree with some people's ideologies and thoughts, but for the most part, I I am a one-person band, you know? I, I can't find people who think like I do. I've literally had like 50 people unfriend me or block me on Facebook just because of my opinions. And so if that doesn't say anything about my willingness to stand alone or be a nonconformist, then I don't know what does. How many of you have had 50 plus people literally like block you because of what what you believe? And it's not that I'm super controversial, it's just that I'm super like I'm not going to give in, you know? No matter how the wind howls, the mountain will not bow to it. You can bitch all you want. You can complain, you can, eh, you're this, you're that. You can make accusations. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change the fact that I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) That's how it is. (sighs) Let me get a drink. When you talk nonstop for 34 minutes and 58 seconds, you start to get cotton mouth. Not the good kind, like you just smoked a fat blunt, but the bad kind, like, ah, take a breath, Ben. You know, while we're uh, talking about Facebook before we get into the depression thing, (sighs) I get it. Due to marriage, name changes are inevitable. Like, uh, uh, if you take his last name, you're not going to be... Okay, I'm going to make up a name by combining two different names. I'm going to say, as a female, your name is Amanda... Hawkins. That's a combination of two real girls that I know, but I'm just, I don't want to pick out anyone. I don't want to pick on anyone or sell anyone out. So 
Amanda Hawkins. Then you get married to a guy whose last name is Jones. You're now Amanda Jones. If I go to look for Amanda Hawkins on Facebook, I start to type in Amanda Hawkins and it doesn't give me any results. I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, I get it. You changed your name to Jones because you got married. So that's fair. That, that's a viable reason to change your name. You got married. So now I respect that I have to type in Amanda Jones. You know when name changing is not acceptable? When you do it yourself for no fucking reason. It just makes you douchey. I hate it. Okay, so uh, my cousin, I love her. Her name is Danielle Bransner. So one day I went to search for her and I typed in Danielle Bransner and nothing fucking popped up. I'm like, what is going on here? And it turns out she changed her name to Marie Danielle. Okay, well, Danielle, like I said, I love you, your family, but your name isn't fucking Marie Danielle. And it's likely that her middle name is Marie. Okay, so how do you get my name is now Marie? No, it's Danielle. And then you, you just you switch your name around? By that logic, my name is Robert Ben. Well, fucking no, it's not. My name is Ben Bransner. Your name is your name. This isn't, this isn't debatable. This is fair of me to say. You don't just get to change things. I could walk out of my house, walk into the next door neighbor's house without asking, and just be like, oh, we're switching houses. I, I've decided I live here now. Well, no, this is still his house. I have my own. I don't get to just change things like that. I have a birth certificate that says my name is Ben fucking Bransner. It actually says that, Ben fucking Bransner. No, you don't, you don't get to do that. And then this other guy that I went to high school with, he was a friend of mine in high school. I have no problem with him. I wish him well, but his name was Dan Kohler. And now he calls himself Daniel John. Well, goddammit, your name is Dan Kohler, not Daniel John. You don't get to do that. Why do people think? Well, what's the point of just mix and matching names? What's the point? What does that accomplish? It's not fair, right? I'm 28, but I am now deciding that I am 36. No, you don't do that. Ah. Okay. So uh, let's talk about depression and anxiety. Let's talk about mental health as uh, as a whole. Overall, let's talk about mental health because whether you live in it or with it, or whether you you just can't seem to understand how a friend or a family member can act a, a certain way or, you know, is the way they are because, you know, mental illness. Either way, this is going to be for you. I promise. Because 70% of people have some sort of, you know, mental disorder or mental illness and they vary. There are different prestige levels, so to speak. Like someone who has depression uh, it might not be the same as somebody else who has depression. It, one might be clinical, one might be you know misdiagnosed, one might be just got out of a breakup, so I'm sad. That's not depression. You know we can kind of confuse these things, and it's not a blanket. I mean we can't blanket statement all of these things. So let's start with anxiety. I don't have a lot of experience with anxiety, mainly because my give a fuck is simply too big. I. I'm an old soul and I realized at a very young age that this life is very temporary and so you're not going to get out alive, don't take things too seriously. I'm also very good at adapting to things. I can walk into a room full of strangers and just sit at a table with them and start talking. I can introduce myself, I can find common ground. Someone with anxiety, you put him or her in a room full of people and they are going to be 
just a mess on the inside. They might not show it, but on the inside, it's like a bunch of people screaming, like, oh, get out of there, get out, this is uncomfortable, go home, you don't know these people, Some they could be staring at you, they're judging you. This is the type of thing that goes on with anxiety. And another way to word it is panic, right? You start to go, oh, I'm uncomfortable, your heart rate goes up, and because your heart rate goes up, you respond to that by going, oh no, something's wrong. Your brain's like, why is the heart rate going up? And the heart rate's like, don't fuck with me, I'm, I'm busy, you know? And it's just a mess on the inside, that's anxiety. And so when I say I don't have a lot of experience with anxiety, that's because I just don't give a fuck. I mean, I can, I can walk into a room and if someone's got a problem with me, we'll either talk about it or we'll fight about it, but either way it's getting solved. I, I'm not afraid of that type of thing, but I understand that there are people who don't sort of have that mindset. A young lady recently messaged me and I get, I get a fair amount of people who message me, you know, I would say occasionally, you know, once a week or so, once every two weeks, just wanting to talk, just wanting someone to bounce ideas back and forth with. And I'm good at that because I'm a good listener, and I also know a lot about the medical field and about psychology because I've lived it, right? So this lady, this young lady, she just said, hey, can I talk to you? And I was playing a video game at the time, so I didn't see this message. And then she got, I got another message, hey, and then another one, hello. And then another one, like a sad emoji face. And so there was like 15 of these by the time I looked in like a two minute period. And I said, hey, sorry, what's up? And she said, I'm having an anxiety attack and I don't know what to do. And she didn't want to talk on the phone. She just wanted to message me because she didn't want to talk to anyone. And I said, okay, well, tell me about it. Let's, let's talk, what are you feeling? And she said, my heart rate is up and I can't get it to go down and it's really uncomfortable and I'm hyperventilating. And I said, that's perfectly normal. I, I mean, that's you're describing a panic attack, an anxiety attack. So first of all, I want you to know that what you're feeling is normal. What you're feeling is, is human. This isn't something that people don't experience and you're going to be fine. Because the, the first thing you need to know when you're having an anxiety attack is this is very temporary. Oftentimes they don't last more than 20 minutes. After a really hardcore panic attack or anxiety attack, you can still feel the after effects, sort of like the uh, after an earthquake, you still have the aftershock, the tremors, but the actual earthquake is over. And I said, okay, just tell me what started this. And she said she was drinking and she smoked too much marijuana. And it's really common for people to get anxiety when they smoke marijuana. It's probably half the people that smoke it get a little anxiety. And if you're already drunk, you can sort of feel like you're not in control. And what anxiety is, is not being in control. I said, well, there are some underlying issues. Let's talk about that. And she said, well, I can't tell you, you know, what the underlying issues are because they're personal. And I said, that is totally your prerogative. You can tell me or you cannot tell me, but you already know this. Talking about things is the way that you cope with them and it helps and you sort of revise things over in your in your mind and then you present them and you brainstorm and then you solve it. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Like, why do I feel this way? Here's everything. You lay it out on the table. Okay, so let's break it down. I got this, I got this. And I said, just tell me, you know, if you feel comfortable, tell me. And she said, okay. So uh, my boyfriend recently lost his job. Um, it doesn't appear that he's going to be trying to get one anytime soon. We're already short on cash. I'm stressed out from work. Uh, the dishes aren't done. The laundry's not done. She just listed off all of these things. Just da-da-da-da-da. And I said, you know, um, this isn't something to feel bad about, but 
90% of the things you just listed to me are stemming from procrastination. Procrastination, and this is a fact, is the leading cause of anxiety. There's social anxiety, like I described earlier, where you know, you're know you afraid to walk into a room, you're afraid people are staring at you or judging you. You know, There's that. And then there's actual sort of anxiety. And if you look at the root cause or causes of anxiety, 70% uh, of the time it's procrastination. If you have a bunch of laundry piling up, you don't feel good about it. There's no way to feel good about it. You look at it, it, it visibly does not look good to have a pile of dirty laundry. If you work a job where clothes get really dirty and stinky and then you pile those up, it can actually physically smell. Okay, the smell isn't pleasant. Now we have two things. It doesn't look good, it doesn't smell good. And then, you know, it sort of weighs on you. Like, I have all this laundry I'm not doing and I'm procrastinating on it. And that makes you feel like, you know, lazy, for lack of a better term. And that doesn't feel good either. And that's all just from laundry. And same with the dishes. If you get down to the point where you have no more clean dishes, so you're fucking eating cereal off of a plate with a spatula, you have a problem. That's procrastination. Uh, some might call it lazy, you know, depending on the situation. It could be either or. But it doesn't feel good. If you have bills that need to be paid and you haven't paid them, and I was telling her all these things. If you have bills that need to be paid, it's on the back of your mind. And then picture it like this. Your mind is a flat surface, a circular, we'll call it a pizza pan. And if the laundry's not done, that's part of it. That occupies a space. And then the dishes aren't done and you've got bills to pay and you really got to go visit your mom because you haven't seen her in a couple weeks and you're starting to feel kind of like an outcast and you've got all these things, well, that plate's going to start to get pretty heavy. That pizza pan, that flat surface. And obviously not physically, concretely heavy, but figuratively, it's going to get heavy. And it, that's why the, the expression exists. It weighs on my mind. It weighs on my conscience. Okay? And there's no way to feel good when you have all of that on your plate. So no wonder when you get high... You know, when you smoke weed, it amplifies everything. It makes food taste better. It makes sex feel better. It makes you just... So there's, there's a euphoria that comes after the initial 20 minutes where your heart rate goes up and there are physical effects and, and mental, emotional effects and whatnot. But uh, the euphoria doesn't happen right away. She had just smoked. And so she was in the early part of it where your heart rate goes up, your fucking pupils dilate, your, your veins, they dilate vaso or vasodilation so your blood flow is you know increased and so your senses are slightly heightened and you're using a different part of your brain because you're high uh, marijuana makes you literally think differently it makes your brain fire differently and so now all these things are amplified and if you have anxiety before that and then you smoke ganja oh man so she said she was in her room and everybody else that was at her house her boyfriend and whoever else were in the other room playing video games and she left the room because she didn't want them to think she was weird. And I understand this completely because I've been there. You just kind of silently go, oh, I'll be right back. And then you just go and you, you focus on breathing. You focus on trying not to die. And you just, you're hyperventilating and, you know, it's really uncomfortable. But, you know, humans are the only species to experience anxiety in this way. And that's a fact. And it's because of the, the human things that we do. A zebra doesn't have rent due on the first. Uh, a hippo doesn't feel fucking embarrassed 
because he's about to go visit his family and he doesn't have a job and he doesn't think they're going to be judging him. See, see, animals, the only anxiety they have is tied in with survival. You can look at a giraffe out there in the Serengeti eating some grass. He's not feeling anxiety, okay? And then if he notices out of the corner of his eye a pack of hyenas, boom, the veins, they, they expand, they dilate, uh, blood flow increases, heart rate increases, fight or flight, uh, he gets into a uh, sort of a, a mode, I guess you could call it anxiety, but really what it is is just him being prepared for the worst, right? For us, that would be anxiety. You're preparing yourself like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Okay, so that's anxiety to us. But for in, in, the, in the wilderness, in the animal kingdom, it's, it's not a tool that they use unless they absolutely have to. Adrenaline kicks in. Okay, that's their version of anxiety. So after the threat is gone, the physical threat that they were then in, this giraffe, okay, the peck of hyenas has decided to move on. Boom, it's like, a, it's like flipping a switch. Boom, back to eating grass. The anxiety is gone. The fight or flight is gone. The stress hormones might be residual, but they're, they're fading, right? And then he never thinks of it again until he needs to again. And so it doesn't weigh on his mind. Humans are not that way. It's in our DNA to experience uh, a little bit of anxiety because, you know, survival, we had to back then. We, you got to have that big stick sharpened and you got to have it ready because a saber-toothed tiger or a bear, something's trying to kill you, right? It's trying to jack you. Not jack you off, jack you. And so that level of anxiety is normal. That's in our DNA, right? But the thing humans have done over time as we have adapted to modern civilization is we have carried anxiety with us even in situations where it doesn't have a place. I told her, right now you are in no physical danger. Like, be, be present with me here. Just take a moment and look around. You're in a comfortable bed. You voluntarily drank some alcohol. Why? To feel good. You voluntarily smoked some ganja. There's people in the other room. You're fine. There are no physical threats around you. So where does this anxiety come from? It's all created in your head. And so we broke it down back and forth, like why? why? What makes you sad? What makes you worried about the future? And so one at a time we picked it apart. It was like dissecting. So obviously you're not going to be hurt, right? So this anxiety is coming because, uh, so how does anxiety work? Uh, physically, these stress hormones like adrenaline that are supposed to only be created when we are in a physical uh, sort of dangerous setting those uh, those chemicals adrenaline they appear and they surface and they they rear their ugly faces in times when we are not in physical danger there is no threat so this young lady she was experiencing stress and adrenaline. Her body went into fight or flight mode. Her heart rate increased. Her pupils dilated. She started hyperventilating. She had to focus on her breathing. But there was no physical threat to identify. And that confuses the body. That confuses the body because we are only supposed to experience stress when there's a threat. If there's no threat, you're going, okay, so why do I feel this way? Okay, focus on the breathing. Okay. It makes sense, right? So I explained this to her and I said, you're fine. You're literally fine. Look around. There's nobody in the house that shouldn't be. You're not, you know, no one's trying to stab you. There's, there's, you're not choking. 
you're not on fire. So just think about this the next time you feel this way. There's a reason you feel this way. And there are two types of health. There's physical health and there's, you know, mental health, emotional health. So it's impossible to feel quote unquote good when both of them are not good, for lack of a better term. You can feel good physically, but if something is emotionally bothering you, if something's weighing on you, overall, you will not feel good. You can feel emotionally great. You can feel wide awake and you can feel like you're ready to tackle the day, but if you're physically ill, or if you have something broken, or if you have something strained or sprained, if, if your physical health is not up to par, it doesn't matter how good you feel mentally. They, they, they coincide. They are yin and yang. They, you need them both, absolutely. On a good day, that's when you feel good physically and you're wide awake and you're, you're alert and you're happy and that that's called, you know, happiness in my opinion. For normal people. But let's move on to depression, something I know much more about. I wrote a 10-page paper in college about it. I wrote a three-page paper, which isn't very long, but a three-page paper that I did a lot of research in, in uh, college-bound English in high school. It's something that I am uh, eccentric and very... I'm just excited about it, not because it's fun to live with, but because I know so much about it and because it has affected me so much and people that I know, and just recently. You know, my mom and I, we don't talk a whole lot, and not as much as I would like to, but, you know, life. She recently messaged me out of nowhere at like 1.30 in the morning. And all it said was, hi, honey, are you happy? And I don't think in my whole life she's ever asked me that before. Not like, how are you? Not like, what's up? What are you doing? What's new? It just said, hi, honey, are you happy? And that was her way of checking in, but I thought it was odd that she chose to use those words. And she knows that I've mm, struggled with depression, so I think she knows the answer to that. But I broke it down in my head. And this is a conversation that I had in my head. I had not put pen to paper yet, or I had not put words to messenger yet. It is 2018. Nobody fucking writes letters anymore. But my initial thought was, well, to be honest with you, I really don't know what happiness is. What am I supposed to feel if I was to say, yeah, I'm happy? The short answer is no. I, mean, I don't think I've ever experienced true happiness. And that's, you know, a side effect of depression, clinical depression. You know, the chemicals in my brain don't function quite as they should. Um, but I just said... <laughs> Live in the dream, sarcastically. And I, I use that phrase a lot. Like when someone says, how are you, or what's new? I just say, live in the dream. You know, you walk into a gas station, and uh, you make your gay little joke, like you slap the money on the table and you go, I have gas. And then you go, out there, in my car, not in here. Ha <laughs> ha. And they're like, yeah, you're a douche. That was a horrible joke. And I'm like, oh, I know. <laughs> well, anyway... When someone says, how are you? I just say, yep, living the dream. I'm fucking killing it. Just dominating life. I got the bull by the horns. Don't fuck with me. Get out of my way, everyone. <laughs> you know? And so it's sarcastically, obviously. But, you know, I really don't know what happiness is. I know what feeling hungry is. I know what feeling tired is. These concrete, autonomic feelings. Not somatic so much. 
if I'm using the body metaphor. Uh, I don't really know what it's like to be happy. If I were to be objective about it and think about my life experiences, well, uh, my parents were divorced when I was two. Um, my mother married a guy who really just never really, I don't know, maybe he did like me, but he never really showed it. He had his ways and I just, I was never good enough when I was there and the house never felt like a home. It felt like a house. It felt like I was a guest there. My dad married a woman who liked me even less than that. Uh, I would venture far enough as to say that she despised me. And I, uh, and this is not just in my head. These are actions. <laughs> actions are louder than words, right? And uh, so it didn't matter growing up as a kid when my mind was like a sponge which house I went to. Either way, it was a house. It wasn't a home. I didn't feel welcome in either one. Okay, so are you happy? Well, let's talk about the childhood. Uh, no. I, I constantly was depressed and sad as a child. I never felt good enough. I never felt welcome. I never felt like I was making anybody proud. So is that all on me? I have to be objective about this. Now some people have these thoughts and it's totally not fair to think that. Now is it fair of me to think this? Is it all in my head or, or, or should do I have a reason to feel this way? Definitely have a reason to. Okay. Um, I had eight surgeries by the time I was 20 years old, so my body doesn't feel good. I mean, think about that. <laughs> broken leg, broken arm, three hernias. I had dry socket when I had my four wisdom teeth removed all at once. I've had two injections in my back. I've had a uh, ACL tear, MCL tear. I had a back surgery, a disectomy, a degenerative disc disease. I just have all these physical problems. So constantly, every day, Every step I take, when I sit down, when I lay down, when I'm trying to get comfortable, chronic physical pain nonstop. And the toughest person in the world cannot handle that. Not that I'm the toughest person in the world. I'm probably a big pussy, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's hard to be happy when, you know, you feel like that. Just everything hurts. You know, I, I, you shouldn't feel like you're 75 years old when you're 20. But I did. Uh, my best friend in the whole world committed suicide. When I was that age, I've been through four long-term relationship breakups in all four of the, or three of the four, I guess. I really fully believed and hoped that they would make it all the way, you know. One of them, I was miserable. Uh, mental health-wise, not really ever been in the best shape. I did, I don't remember Googling it. I don't remember Googling it, but apparently I did when I was like 13 years old uh, on the computer because, you know, there's a Google history, a search history, I don't know, 13 or 14, I googled painless suicide. And I saw that later on, I don't know, like a year or two, however long, right before we got rid of that computer and switched to another one, I happened to notice in the search history, painless suicide. And I was thinking, why the fuck is a 13-year-old googling that? Well, that was further proof to me, further evidence that there was definitely something wrong. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it as, as a youngin, as like a 10 year old. I was like, I don't like this. I, I don't like this life. Everywhere I go is, is negative, you know, whether it's stepmom or stepdad, it's just things weren't great. And since a child's mind is like a sponge, it's sort of amplified. Now, today, if someone were to say things to me, like things that were said to me when I was young and things that have stuck with me, 
I would just say, fuck off, you know, you're the one with the problem. But as a kid, you're not developed. Your prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed until you're like 20 fucking five or something. So a child's mind is, is literally like a sponge absorbing all of these things. And it's your job as a parent to make sure that it's, it's more positive than negative. And in a lot of cases, that just doesn't happen to be the case. I, I wasn't sexually abused. I was definitely verbally abused. And only on a couple of occasions was there anything physical. So it's not like uh, I can say that I had it as bad as you could possibly have it, but I had it really bad as a child. And my sisters, thank goodness, uh, they don't have the darkness inside of them. That's what I refer to uh, depression as, is the darkness. Uh, Dexter refers to it as the dark passenger. There's just a dark something in there that doesn't allow you to live life to the fullest. Well, the best way to describe depression is this. Um, in high school, if you were to turn in your project on time, you were graded based on how you did. If you got an A, then you got an A. If you got a B, then you got a B, right? And then if it was late, my teachers would say, okay, for every day that you turn it in late, you are docked one letter grade. So say you turn it in one day late. Now, instead of possibly getting an A, the best grade that you can possibly get is a B. And that's only if you would have gotten an A before. So if you have an A project, but you turn it in a day late, that's a B. If you have a B project, but you turn it in a day late, that's a C. You see what I'm saying? So the way I describe depression to people who don't understand it is if the best day that you can have, you know, as a normal person, quote unquote, is an A, then a depressed person could have that same day, that same experience, and only feel like it was a B, right? You go to a water park, you go out for steak, you know, you have a good day, you relax, and as a normal person, that's a fucking A, you had a good day, but as a person with depression, depending on how, you know, the level of it, that's a B or a C. You never fully get to experience happiness. And there are definitely medications that you know, I wouldn't say they fucking aren't without their flaws because SSRIs and mood stabilizers, they definitely do have uh, cons as well as their pros. But essentially what they do is, is make you less manic. Uh, if you have sort of episodes of mania where you're really up or really down, you're all over the place. You might be fucking confused as bipolar. Like you're super happy, then one day you're super sad. That's, that's called being manic. And what these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, or what these antidepressants, these mood stabilizers do, is they eliminate uh, sort of the ceiling and the basement. They disallow you to be as depressed or as happy. The manicness, the mania, is shrunk down to where you can only be sort of flatlined. You're not going to get too excited about anything. But you're also not going to be sad about anything. You're just going to be kind of like a zombie, like uh, monotone. And that's better than being manic because super high is, is not very common. Super low is very common when you're referring to someone's mindset. So when I was prescribed Depakote and Citalopram and Lexapro and Seroquel, uh, that's what I noticed was uh, the way I described it. It was like a fog. I couldn't be sad but I couldn't be happy. 
And after three or four years of taking those, I I just quit cold turkey one day. And I remember that was that's not I mean that's a big no no, because a lot of people who try that end up committing suicide. It's rough. Doctors do not want that. And I remember when I told my doctor that, like years later was the next time I went to the doctor because I started having, you know, some health issues. The doctor said, you what? Because they they brought up my medication list. He goes, are you still on Seroquel, Depakote, and Citalopram? I said, nope. And he goes, how come? And I said, well, I I stopped taking them. And he said, why? And I said, well, I, I didn't like the way they made me not, I can't say I didn't like the way they made me feel because I didn't feel. I didn't like the way they made me not feel. And he said, well, that's, that's the point of them because you have clinical depression. The chemicals in your brain are not functioning properly and you, they're, they're sort of mixed up and the, the wires in your brain and the, the axons and the blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he was explaining this very scientifically and medically to me. And I said, you're preaching to the choir, sir. I get it, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the fog. And it was the longest month of my life when I stopped cold turkey because if you do, if you do, and most people take them you know, for a lifetime. What you're supposed to do is slowly wean yourself off. Instead of 100 milligrams, take fucking 80 or 50. You know, cut that pill up. And then the next day, 50. And then the next day, 40. And then the next day, 30. You know, wean yourself off. Because that way, just one day, you're, you're not getting the things that your body has and your brain has been absorbing for the last three years. And it's, it's not going to put you in any sort of shock. There are alcoholics and heroin addicts that when quit cold turkey, their body actually shuts down. It's actually better for them to continue, but in smaller doses, until they can finally quit than it is to quit cold turkey. That's if you're super addicted. And after years of taking SSRIs and mood stabilizers, which are very fragile because they are literally for your brain, which still, to this day, in 2018, not much is known about it in in the long term. Obviously, we know about the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe and the temporal lobe and the occipital we know about these things but we don't you know we don't know as much as we would like to we being humans not me i'm not a brain i'm not a neurologist but any anyone who studies it will will admit that there are still mysteries and that's not good mysteries are unknown unknown is uncomfortable and so uh the way i would word it is Okay, so I have a, a friend, a friend who told me that he recently got on meds, and I was able to guess which meds that he was put on, because he had a, I don't remember if he said anxiety or depression or both, but oftentimes the medicines overlap, right? And I think it's good for him. I, I don't think it's good in a, in a long term. I am not a fan of what they do to you long term, but if you're in a slump, in a real slump. I don't mean just, oh, I got fired, or oh, I'm sad, or oh, I just went through a breakup. That's not depression. And oftentimes it gets misdiagnosed as depression, but what that is, is a sadness. It's a slump. It is a night, a darkness that you need to get through to experience the day again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real depression, real anxiety. If you have that, you need to be on something because it's risky to not be on something if it gets bad enough. Uh, long-term effects not looking too promising over 90% of mass shooters and people who have killed people or attacked people over 90% of them 
have been on SSRIs. And scientifically speaking, that's well beyond a coincidence. That's not a coincidence anymore at 90%. That is a, you can't use the F word. It's not a fact until it's 100%. But it's almost a fact that if you're on SSRIs for long-term periods, your brain's going to be literally and uh, figuratively rewired. Uh, the chemicals, they're not doing their thing, right? And then the SSRIs, and we don't know enough about brains yet to fully commit to this, but we're going to give this to you anyway because it'll temporarily make you not kill yourself. And then in the long run, you just go nuts. I remember having some very dark thoughts during that month. I mean, I've, my whole life, it's been dark thoughts, very things that you shouldn't think, I think, and almost on a daily basis. It's part of living with depression. But... I remember that month, I I had some thoughts, some thoughts that I did not ever entertain because I knew I had enough of a head on my shoulders because, you know, I, I have some morals and values, but just one wrong turn or one person saying something or doing something that he or she shouldn't have, it could have been a violent thing, and I've never been a violent guy, and I did not like how how sort of easily agitated I was. I could have easily been convinced to, to knock the head off your shoulders if you had said things that I didn't like. You know, it was just, I was I had the cold sweats, I had the shakes, I didn't sleep well, I had a massive headache. Definitely withdrawals going on there from a medical perspective. Just not good. But afterwards, I remember telling my grandma, because I, I was a grandma's boy, um, I spent a lot of time with her, you know, before she passed away, which was another problem growing up, you know, losing your grandparents that you're very close to, losing your cousin, losing your best friend to cancer, heart attack, suicide, uh, just a shitty up, just you name it, right? But I remember saying that I, I felt things. I might feel sad, but I feel. That's what I said. And it was true because the medicine, it blurs you, it clouds you, it clouds your judgment, it clouds, like, you, you weren't going to make me sad, but you could surprise me with a steak dinner and I wasn't going to be quote-unquote happy. And to revisit what I said earlier when I said I don't really know what happiness is, I mean, for a normal person, I mean, I can Google it and dictionary it, dictionary.com, what is happiness? Well, happiness is when, okay, I, I get that, but as far as for myself, I don't know because... I've never f thought, okay, right now I'm feeling happy. What I told this young lady when she was having an anxiety attack was you need to distract yourself. Even the person in the world with the worst anxiety, when distracted, when not focusing on said anxiety or said, uh, you know, panic, isn't feeling it. You put a person who has anxiety in a video game or immersed in a softball game or something that he or she enjoys and for that time, for that minute, for that hour, whatever it happens to be, he or she will not be tortured by anxiety. And the reason why is because he or she is distracted. You're not thinking about it. You're not dwelling. You're not focused, right? So I use that same logic for myself uh, with this depression, living with it. I find ways to distract myself. Because if I were to just sit, you know, not scroll on Facebook, not watch a movie, not watch a show, not play a video game, not record a podcast, not read the Bible, which I'm trying to do more of, not cooking, there are things that I enjoy doing, for sure. But they don't make me happy. 
they distract me from not being sad, if that makes sense. Um, when I had lost my cousin, who I was close to, my grandma and grandpa, who I was very close to, uh, my best friend committed suicide. I had dropped out of college because I literally couldn't even concentrate. I couldn't fucking memorize a bunch of shit for a college-level test, let alone, you know, keep going to all... I just... I was at a very dark point in my life. I, I had just gotten out of a breakup, and I, my heart was broken. The first cut is the deepest, right? So all these things happened, like, fucking in a really short period of time. I ended up on the fourth floor, the mental hospital. And I've told some people this, but I haven't told a lot of people this. And it's not because I don't, you know, want them to know, or I'm embarrassed or ashamed. It's just because it never gets brought up. If, it, if you ask, I'll tell. I, I'm an open book. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I wear my brain on my other sleeve. People know this. Well, I was going to a psychiatrist slash psychologist slash therapist, you know, at this time, and I was just having a really rough time. I All these things were compounding, and my fucking upbringing was shitty, and I didn't feel welcome, you know, wherever I went, and a lot of it, I would say 99% of it was justifiable to feel this way. Sometimes we have ideas in our head and we're wrong. That's just how we feel. That's not really how it is. This is not the case. These things were all legit. And uh, it must have been really bad that one day because I had been to the therapist many times, countless times, different ones. And I was telling this lady, you know, therapists are good at bringing things out. They're doing their job. It's one of the reasons I'm good at it is because I've basically shadowed <laughs> as a therapist. I've done so many of them. I've been to so many sessions. And I was crying. And I was already at the hospital because the therapist that I was seeing was at the hospital. It had nothing to do with the actual hospital. She was just a therapist that had her office at the hospital, right? So I'm talking to her and I started crying. I broke down. And I just said, I'm, I'm tired. That's all, that's all I said. I didn't say I'm sad. I didn't say I'm depressed. I didn't say anything. I just said, I'm tired. I'm tired of waking up. I'm tired of having to do this, this life thing. I don't have the energy to shower, let alone, you know, go to work, let alone try to make someone happy. I just can't, I can't do this. I, I, I had run out. My battery was empty, you know. I was on E. I was on fumes. And I, it wasn't that I was angry. It wasn't that I was sad. It wasn't that I was any of the... I was just tired. And I told her that. And that wasn't a phrase that was commonly used. Usually you hear, you know, fucking divorce, fucking cheated on, fucking, you know, there's all these reasons. But I just said, I'm just tired. As a person. I, I feel like I've been here a lot of years and I'm only whatever I was, 20. And she said, you know, a bunch of shit. And at the end of it, she goes... If I let you go today, will you promise me that you won't harm yourself? And I've never harmed myself. I've never cut. I've never, you know, brought a noose out into the woods and gotten ready to hang myself. I've, I had never even given it a thought because I've, I saw firsthand what suicide did to families and friends because it affected me for years, and it still does. What Scott did, he took his own life and... I told him the last time I saw him, you know, because he was dropping out of college as well before I did. And I said, fucking stay in touch, motherfucker. You know, like, I know that you're not going to be living in the same area I am, but just 
call me, you know, because I knew he was struggling. We had a lot of talks about his mental health and about the things he struggled with and his family and the, the dark thoughts he had. I said, fucking call me. And then one day, out of nowhere, I get a text from Chris, this classmate of mine, and it said, is that true about Scott? And I hadn't heard a thing. I said, yeah, it's true. He got kicked out of college. That was my response. And he goes, no. Did he kill himself? And I said, what? No. Like, I what? You know, I hope not. I haven't heard it. That's the first I've heard. And then I got another text from another classmate because they knew that I was close with him. They knew that we were best friends in our college days. You know, we spent almost every day together for that whatever year, however long, that before he dropped out. And... I, I said, oh, I, I don't fucking know. Like, this is the second time I'm hearing of this. Like, he told me, he promised me that he would call me, you know? And apparently it got so bad and so dark that it was beyond, okay, I'm calling you because I'm feeling this way. It was too late. It was, he was too far gone. And he took his own life. And I, um, I had recently purchased a gun before this therapist appointment. And it was not to I had no plan I had, I I like guns. I grew up on a farm. I like shooting. I like shooting stuff. I bought this Glock 45, this pistol. And I bought it just because, you know, I, I it wasn't for any bad reason, truly. And when she said, you know, uh I if I let you go today, you have to promise me that you're not going to harm yourself. And I said, I can't do that. And my mom had recently, you know, discovered that I had purchased a gun. And I don't know if she told the therapist this or what, but the therapist said, why did you buy a gun? And I said, it's not because I have plans to kill myself. It's not because I'm, you know, suicidal, but it does feel better knowing that I have that gun. That's, that's what I said. I said, uh, I, I, I don't plan to do it. I've never planned to do it. I, I'm against suicide. I've seen what it does. I'm semi-religious. I know that it's really not a good idea to to take your own life, you know, religiously speaking, either. So I, I would never do it. No matter how sad or depressed I got, all I said was, it just feels good knowing that I have that gun. Because I'm tired, you know? And she said, okay. Uh, that, that was a, enough of a red flag for her. She said, you know, now that you've told me that, I can't allow you to leave. And I said, what? And she goes, no, um, you got to stay. And I said, well, no, I want to go home because I had plans that day. I had plans to go somewhere with friends. You know, this was just a therapist appointment. Like from, it was a 45-minute appointment from this time to this time. I had my day laid out. And she said, you can go home. You can leave this office. But the police will bring you back. You are, uh, I am, you know, I, I've deemed that you are a threat to yourself. And so I can't let you leave. And I said, okay, so I've got to do some inpatient therapy. Okay, I get it. I'll be back like tomorrow. She goes, no, you're, you're staying. She wasn't going to let me leave. And so they went out and she stepped out. She talked to my parents and she came back in and she said, come with me. And just then I followed her up, up an elevator and there were some fucking guards. I felt like I was in like a prison. It wasn't like a, they weren't like strapped with a gun, like that type of guard, but they were like ready to like stop me for if I was going to take off or whatever and these big dudes and then I get up to the fourth floor and she goes all right go to the front desk and sign in and they took my shoelaces and they gave me back my shoes 
They uh, they told me to write down a list of all the things I needed because I was going to be there a while. And <laughs> it, what an experience! I, I it, just that quick from you know from a therapist appointment to all of a sudden we got to take your shoelaces from you. You're on suicide watch. Uh, you're going to be in this room because this room the lights are on and you leave the door open at all times if you're in there no closing the door and we will be here and so I spent nine days on the fourth floor every day there was the same routine we had to go to breakfast whether or not you ate you had to go and then there was uh, this the circular table meeting thing that we did where you didn't have to talk but you had to listen and it was an hour long and everybody had to attend and what we did was we went around in a circle and we told our story essentially why are you here what are the events that led up to you being mandatorily here like why did we disallow everybody in this room not you know to leave and I I always talked and I enjoyed learning why people felt the way I, I was a huge fan of psychology then just as I am now I almost looked at it like uh, like from an outside perspective like I was learning I didn't really think about okay the reason why I'm here is because I'm a danger to myself because in my head I knew that I wasn't I I was very honest when I said I'm just tired I'm tired of this life I'm tired of all the bullshit I'm I, you can only handle so much before you know you just go nuts but I met several uh, great big-hearted interesting people and they were all good people they just they were having a rough go at life you know uh, not everybody gets dealt a good hand not physically not emotionally oftentimes in both and some people are just unlucky you know I, I always felt in my case it was just unlucky like if it could go wrong it would Murphy's Law right uh, like Al Bundy you know it could be sunny everywhere but over him there's a rain cloud you know I just always felt that way and what I took from my nine-day stay there besides uh, being prescribed a shitload of meds that made me feel like super fucked up was that everybody has uh, well not it okay so how do I word this what I took from that experience was everybody deals with bullshit and everybody has a different sort of capacity for which he or she is able to deal with said bullshit um, that's mental health you know if uh, somebody less emotionally strong with less fortitude than I had had experienced everything that I had experienced it's likely that he or she would have committed suicide conversely there are people who have gone through things worse than I have experienced and they have not committed suicide so it's sort of uh, bittersweet. It's a double-edged sword. Like I learned that, yes, my life sucks. Totally, it, it does, 100%. Objectively, subjectively, shit. I got, I got a bad hand dealt to me. But there are people who have it worse. And what we have in common is we are all sort of fighting. We're fighters. Like every day is, is a new challenge. And you bring your dark passenger with and you deal with it. That's what I, that's what I took with. And the, there was a young lady in there who I spent a lot of time talking to, and she was in there because her husband had just left her, and I never did ask what she meant when she said it, but she told me I'm in here because I'm broken. I'm physically broken. I don't know if that meant she was raped 
or if there was something, you know, with her body that was sort of like she was going to die. I don't, I don't know what it was, but she was super depressed. She was a very sweet person. She had clearly been hurt by something. Like, everybody was in there for a different reason, you know? One guy's wife left him, uh, cheated on him. She got the kids in the house, and he was homeless, and he was thinking about killing himself. There's Everybody has a story. And so I learned that, uh, yeah, mine's unique, but that doesn't make it better or worse. It's just life is tough, right? And it's tougher if you're ugly, and it's even tougher if you're depressed. But it's something that I've just, eh, I guess I've accepted. And it makes... It just makes death less scary, you know? Like, you don't want to die because it's in your genes to not want to die, but when you realize it's just natural. Life is natural. Bad shit happens. Good shit happens. You count your blessings. You be thankful for the good things that happen. You resent the bad things, but you push them away. Fuck off. Don't hurt me. And that's really all there is to it. We all have bad shit happen to us, and the more that we are there for each other during the bad shit... The night cools the day, you know, yin-yang, bad shit, good shit. You have to experience negative to really appreciate the positive. If only good positive things ever happened to us, then we wouldn't know what it's like to experience good positive things because it would just be normal. It'd be normal for everything to go our way. Whereas if you have bad things happen to you and oh, that's fucking bullshit, that's terrible, and then you experience something good, the contrast there is so that you will understand that this is a good thing. You have to experience the darkness to feel the light. I cannot give any more metaphors. Dark, light, night, day, up, down, left, right. It's, it's a balance, it's a contrast, and it's important for mental health. Um, yeah, life sucks. I mean, to this day, I mean, I've, I've lost too many loved ones and too many relationships and friendships and constant chronic pain and whatnot, but whatever, you know, it's temporary. Just gonna ride the wave, that's the plan. The funny story that I will share <laughs> before leaving now, because this has been a nice long podcast, is um, the first night, the first evening of being at the, uh, the on the fourth floor. I'm sitting there, and I don't have shoelaces, they've taken away, this is a fucking shock to the system here. This was like, whoa, a few hours ago, I was just going to leave, you know, but my mom went with me to that therapy session and she waited outside and the person stepped outside and said, he can't leave. He's a threat to himself. And my mom was like, oh shit, really? Like that's worse than I thought, you know, cause you know, depression, you keep it inside. That's the secret, right? Bottle it up. <laughs> Don't talk about it. Well, I was a stubborn 20 year old guy. What was I going to say? So, of course, there were some things going on that I told my therapist that my parents couldn't know. Well, anyway, all of a sudden I went from I was going to go out to eat at Hoo-Ha with some friends to, okay, I'm stuck here, and I don't have my phone, I don't have shoelaces, so I'm sitting at a table, a little table with these strangers, and it's evening time, we had just eaten, and it was medication uh, introduction. The, the first time that the psychiatrist prescribes you medication. So I am given either a, th I think it was 2,000, yeah, 2,000 milligrams of Depakote, 1,000 uh, milligram pills, two of them, of Depakote, and 200 of Seroquel, and 40 of Cytalopram. So it was 1,240, 1,240 milligrams 
of SSRI mood stabilizer. Uh, they have sedatives in them. There's a certain euphoria that you feel. And so it's like if you drink a lot, the more you drink, the more it takes to feel a buzz. And if you smoke a lot of weed, the more it takes to, you know, feel high. But if you've never, or you, you know, you have no tolerance to weed or drinking, one shot and you're like, oh, oh, or one hit off the pipe and you're like, oh. So I had never taken these things. And we're all playing Pictionary. Maybe it was the fucking, the other one. There's, you have to give hints and you can't say the word or uh, any of these five words on the card, but you have to get your partner, your teammate, to guess the word. Like, you can use any word except for the ones on the card to get them to guess the word. Whatever game that is, we're all playing it. And me and my teammate were just dominating. And it was my first night, so I get my meds, and it goes, like, I take my meds, right? And bedtime, lights out, was like 9 p.m. Then you gotta be in your room. You don't have to go to sleep, but you gotta be in your room. So it's like, I don't know, fucking 6, 7 p.m., whatever we had just eaten. And so I take my meds, and it's the first time. And we go from dominating, because this other guy is pretty smart, I'm pretty smart. We're just dominating this game, and it's like 7 to 2 or something for points. And then my meds start kicking in, and I'm like, oh... I felt like a mixture of drunk and high. It was like an acid trip. All that fucking 1,240 milligrams of shit hit me at once. And I just felt like I was on a cloud. I've, I've never done heroin, but I would imagine that's what that's like. I was just like, oh, super like lightheaded and euphoria. And I had never felt so good. I was like, oh man. And our scores reflected that. I was garbage at the game. I was like, ah. Words are hard right now. <laughs> and they have sedatives in them too, so I'm like falling asleep sitting up, and I went to bed early that night, and I, I don't know if I've ever slept that good because I have insomnia, and I never sleep good, and I have uh, sleep apnea, so I jolt awake to this day. I bet I have jolted awake because my body forgot to breathe. You know, you have your autonomic uh, system and your uh, somatic system, right? Autonomic sort of sounds like automatic. It makes sense because it's the the actions of your body that you don't have to do. They just happen. Breathing, fucking heart beating, these are things you don't think about and actively do, right? So when you have sleep apnea, your body's autonomic functions struggle. They suffer a little, right? So you forget to breathe. And then all of a sudden you jolt awake in your sleep because your body is like, <gasps> because you forget to breathe and you run out of oxygen. And no matter how many times it happens to you, every time it happens to you, you will feel like you're dying, like you're having a heart attack, like this is it, this is how it ends. And it's scary, it's scary. And then after a few seconds you go, okay, that's what that was. And then you like catch up, you catch your breath. It's like being held underwater and then being let up, you know? And that also doesn't help because I never sleep and sleep is important for emotional health as well. But yeah, just, I think I slept fucking great that night. Anyway, uh, I have so much more I could talk about with mental health. I, I'm like an encyclopedia. I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, but I've lived it. I've studied it. Uh, I, I think this is nerdy to admit, but I kept my college psychology textbooks and uh, as recently as two months ago-ish, two months ago-ish, I actually read some out of one. I'm just nerdy, you know? I, I am a huge fan of medical stuff and psychological stuff 
Boy, you really sound intelligent when you use that word. Stuff. Boy, listen to this guy. He's going to teach us stuff. Well, you know what I mean. Just general... It's a blanket thing. I like it all, you know. It's nerdy to admit, but I like it. So anyway, this has been Volume 15 of the Ben Again Podcast. I will see you guys next time. And that could be tomorrow, or it could be the year 2026. So, have a good day.